we've been, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, today, we're going to cover a lot of Scripture, but it's going to be awesome. You guys ready? Yeah. I'm so excited. So if you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 36. And today's sermon is titled, Broken, Blessed, and Burning. So I want you to look at the person next to you and say, broken. Okay, look at them and say, blessed. And then say, burning. Okay, and this will all make sense in a minute. For now, you just be confused where you sit. It'll be okay. All right. So Luke seven thirty six. And I'm just going to read uh, just through this, this passage of Scripture. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, speaking about Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, he answered, say it, teacher. And a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged correctly or rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a beautiful story. It's like it's such a beautiful story. And if you can imagine it, I'm, in Jewish culture at the tables, uh, there were low-level low tables. If you were at the Seder dinner, uh, you would have seen this on the video that we watched. They're really low tables, and they would have like, like pillows all about, and they would just lay on their side. They would recline on their left arm. And so Jesus' feet are just extended out from the table, and this woman, this, this, this sinful woman, comes into a Pharisee's home and begins to, to do this thing, go about these actions that were very loving, but very, very offensive. And so this morning, what I want us to talk about, we're going to be focusing on the heart. Jesus says it all the time. It's about your heart. It's not about your actions. It's about your heart. It's not about necessarily what you think you're doing right or wrong. It's about your heart. Where's your heart at? And so this morning, that's what we're going to be talking about in the sense of heart. So we're going to start talking about the Pharisee's heart. So everybody say Pharisee heart. And before I get into this, um, I shared this on Friday, and something the Lord showed me afterward was uh, we, we, all, we all have this. Like, to, to a certain extent, we've either had this or we have this right now, a Pharisee heart. And it's really easy to read through the Bible and pinpoint the good guys and then pinpoint the bad guys and identify with the good guys and then slam on the bad guys like like that guy was an idiot I couldn't believe the Pharisee acted that way you know and we think that we like to think highly of ourselves like we were to do we would have done the same thing that the woman would have done 
But something I want us to be really, really just real with our own selves. How do you connect with each character we're about to go through? How do you relate to the Pharisee? Because I know I do. And so I know some of us, I know a lot of us probably do. So the Pharisee's heart. Now, he, I mean, he goes about this in a good way. I mean, he, I mean, it seems so. He invites Jesus over to his home for, for a meal. It seems like a very awesome gesture, very kind of him to do. However, when you get into what Jesus' response to Simon is, you begin to expose a true motive of heart in Simon the Pharisee. Yes, he invites Jesus for a meal, but he treats Jesus awfully in, the, in that culture. See, in that culture, if you had even, even the most basic guest so today, let's, let's talk about our culture first. In our culture, when you have somebody come over to your home, you do things like offer them something to drink. You, you offer to take their coat from them and hang it up somewhere or throw it in a stashed closet or something, and then hopefully you find it or something. But we do these basic things for our guests. If you truly honor the guest, you do very basic things. In Jewish culture, there were three very basic things that you would do for your guest. You would give them water for their feet so that they could wash their feet. The reason for this is because, again, they didn't, they didn't have um, these toms, these wonderful toms that I'm wearing. They didn't have those back then. They had sandals. They didn't have Nikes. They had sandals. And so within their sandals, they're walking on dirt all the time, walking on dirt. So they have really dirty feet. I was telling the students this on Friday as well. They, don't have, they didn't have cars. So they have, they have wild animals walking all over the place. And where there's wild animals, there's a lot of poop. All over the place. It's disgusting, okay? So these, their feet were very, very unclean. So when you come into a guest's home, well, the very, very first thing you do is you wash your feet off. But it's the, it's the responsibility of the host to provide the water and also a servant to wash your feet for you. Now, Simon the Pharisee doesn't do this for Jesus. He doesn't give him water for his feet. That's like the most basic thing you do for a guest. Okay, on top of that, the next thing that you would do is you would, uh, so he, after that, then um, they would pour anointing oil on a person's head. It's like a form of blessing. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't give him anointing oil for his head. That's very, very basic. That's not a very extreme thing to do. It's like you offering somebody water to drink. And then he doesn't give Jesus a kiss of greeting. So he invites Jesus over to his home. But we need to understand, again, Simon is a Pharisee. And in that Pharisee heart, he almost has this superiority complex where he feels like he's above Jesus. Odds are he's older than Jesus, so he probably feels like he has more respect within the home, that he's the more honored one. So the first question that I have for us is this. Do we feel like it's Jesus' honor to be in our lives, or is it our honor to have Jesus in our lives? Because I think a lot of times we can go about it in a sense of like, God, man, you're, you're just lucky I'm on your team. Like, look at all the awesome things I'm doing for you. You know, so what, you know, I mean, like, like we can get that clear. And that's something that I really want to hit, hit hard today. God doesn't need us. He wants us, but he doesn't need us. He spoke through a donkey. He doesn't need you to preach. Okay. You're honored to be able to speak. And in the same way, I mean, like Jesus even says, if, if we weren't to worship, man, the rocks would worship him. See, he's not in a need he has a desire, a heart for us of love, of a father. So this man, Simon, he treats Jesus as a lesser individual. And he demonstrates an attitude that suggests that he believed it was actually Jesus who was honored to be in his home. Okay. Now we, all in hindsight, we're like, dude, that's Jesus. I can't believe he treated him like that. 
But honestly, how often do we treat people like that? It's your honor that I'm your friend, you know? Or, man, you're so fortunate to be in my home right now, you know? And so it's this something I want us to really think about. Now, his self-righteousness, everybody say self-righteousness. Okay, his self-righteousness is, that's, that's basically what you're seeing in Simon. That's what you see throughout the Pharisees. It's what you see Jesus. If Jesus is ever, like, rude or, like, just intensely just passionate about something, it's against the heart of a self-righteous person, okay? Because what that is is it's hard soil. And to break hard soil, you need to use a very, very hard pick, a very, very hard shovel. It hurts, you know? And so this Pharisee, Jesus is going to, Jesus is just awesome the way he deals with these people. It's so great. Jesus is awesome the way he deals with us because he knows everything. Yeah, exactly. So Simon the Pharisee's self-righteousness was this. It was a rejection, a complete rejection of God's forgiveness and love. We all understand in Christianity that, that God, he's offering us love and forgiveness free. It wasn't free for him. It's free for us. But there's a big obstacle and it's called pride and the moment we think that we have it all together we no longer have access to that because it's not because God isn't giving it to us but because we're building our own wall between us and God between the forgiveness he has and the love he has for us we put up our own walls by saying I have it all together I'm good enough and in Simon's case he felt like he was even better than Jesus now I think if we were to analyze and put this in today's perspective, Simon would be like the utmost churchgoer that you could imagine. Okay, so, so just imagine, like the, the most incredible church person you've ever met. Like this person, I mean, he's all, they're all about church. Like they're always doing all these good things and, and giving people things and et cetera. You know, all the right stuff. They're always doing it. But at their heart is about them. Self-righteousness. That's kind of what we see here with Simon. Now, we're going to go to the sinful woman's heart. Now, this woman, and this scholarly debate, but the most accepted um, theory is that she was a prostitute, that she was a, a prostitute within this town. So she's a very sinful woman, very, very sinful, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But that idea of being very sinful, it's interesting. So she's most likely a prostitute. Now, who's ever met somebody who truly believes if they step foot into a church, they're going to light up in flames? I've, I've met people that legitimately believe that. They feel like, no, I can't go to church. Like, I'll burst into flames at the door. Now, it's funny. And, like, as I was thinking about it, I laughed because it's like, that's you know, it's such a bogus idea. Like, that's the complete opposite of God. God loves and God forgives. So then I began to ask myself, okay, well, where did that idea come from? It's not God. We know it's not of God that somebody would feel that way to come to church. I think it's the church that creates an atmosphere that makes people feel like they're going to burst into flames. Because if I, I honestly, like, let's ask ourselves this question. If there was a woman that were to walk through this door right now and she was dressed completely inappropriate, our very first thought is going to be, you don't belong here. Go change. Go put something on. You're tempting me. Like, that sounds like a hard issue inside of us. But when we create that kind of atmosphere, but, but then at the same time, we're trying to reach out to the world, to the lost and the broken and the hurting, but we create an environment where they can't even walk through a door without feeling like they're going to burst into flames. 
what's the church going to do? You know, what, 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 how is the kingdom of heaven going to advance? And we say this all the time, but we need to check our hearts because I think even sometimes we walk into these doors and we feel like, well, I don't want to burst into flames, so I'm going to put on a fake smile. I'm going to act like everything's okay. When somebody asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to be like, oh, man, great. Everything's just awesome, you know? Don't ask me any personal questions, though. Coffee's good. Donuts are good. I got to go use the bathroom, and I'm going to get out of this conversation quick, you know? When we create an atmosphere like that, where there's no openness, there's no honesty, there's no brokenness, the Holy Spirit can't move because we think we're good enough. And so self-righteousness becomes a hindrance. Pride becomes a hindrance to what God wants to do so heavily, not just in this place, but all throughout the church. Now, this woman, though, that's kind of the, that's kind of the atmosphere she finds herself in. She's a, she's a prostitute. And she risks going into the home of one of the most self-righteous Pharisees. That's huge. I want you to imagine if there's, a, if there's a group of people that you just know, for some of you guys, it's your in-laws, you know, so sorry, but people that you just know, they just don't like you. They don't like you. They have a negative attitude against you. And so you know that the moment you walk into a room with them, their thoughts are immediately of judgment towards you. That's what this woman's putting herself in. Most of us are like, I'm staying away from that, like as far away from that as possible. This woman, she puts herself right in the center of judgment. Why? Because she wasn't there for Simon. She was there for Jesus. She heard about Jesus. She knew who she was, but she knew who Jesus was. The reason we come to church isn't because of who we are. It's because of who he is. And when we, when we get that, when that, like we, we sang a song this morning, Jesus be the center. When Jesus is the very center of everything, and it's no longer about you or I, then all the gifts of heaven pour out upon us. But if that's not in place, and we still think we're the center, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, you guys have all heard of uh, scientist Copernicus, yeah? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Copernicus. He was an old, old dude. All right? <laughs> Wikipedia him. It's, it's a good, he's a good guy to know about. Now, back in his day, he, it, was, it was common theory that the earth was the center of the universe. That, that, that the earth was the very center of, that, of our solar system. That the sun and all the planets and even all the stars were evolving around us. Now, what's funny is they would go to the grave for this, this belief, this, this wholehearted belief. Other scientists, if you ever disagreed with them, you were immediately a church version, like our version of heretic. That's what you were in the science world, okay? You were completely cast out, lost all your respect. Nobody listened to you anymore because you had it wrong. So if you ever disagreed with this theory that the earth was the center of the solar system, you're shunned. Copernicus says... The earth isn't the center at all. Like, we're missing it. We're completely missing something. And these guys, these other mathematicians, they're, again, they're so diehard about it. And they have their, you know, back in the day calculators or whatever they used to use. And they're like, they're trying to figure it out. And their math won't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But they're so, they're so certain. They are completely positive. They're the center. But when they do the math, 
when they're, when they're tracking the stars and the planets, it never makes sense. So they brush their, they, they brush that off to the side and then they start all over again. Be like, well, we must have done something wrong. We're still the center. We must have just done something wrong in our calculation. So we'll just keep recalculating until it fits our program. And in the church, in life, not just the church, it's a human issue. The human condition is us. We're the center. And we'll go to the grave believing I'm the point. I'm the point. And everything needs to revolve around me. But nothing makes sense when that's the case. Life hurts. It's painful. Things just don't work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work ever, ever, ever. But we'll go to the grave believing I'm still the center. And I'm going to keep trying it and trying it and trying it and trying it until that finally works out for me. But just like these mathematicians, you, I mean, you don't change math. Math is certain. It's, it is set. If Christ isn't the center, nothing works. Nothing goes the way that God designed it to, to, to go. Now, I want to ask you that. I mean, we've, we've heard this, this statement, you know, Jesus needs to be on the top of your priority list. But what that suggests is that if, if Jesus is at the top of our priority list, you know, take care of that one, check that off, and then whatever's under that doesn't really matter as long as he's on top of the list. I want to propose that's not the way it works at all. It's not Jesus at the top and then do whatever you want. It's everything needs to revolve around him. And if it's not revolving around him, it doesn't need to be in your life. It doesn't. It won't make sense. It won't work out. Jesus needs to be the center of it all. Now, this woman, again, she knew who Jesus was. She also knew who she was. And she risks everything to go for Jesus. And then her actions beyond that, what we see in this beautiful story, were completely socially unacceptable. Unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. I want you to imagine... The, 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 this, it's just this man, he's this man, Jesus. He's a human being and he's sitting at this table, laying at this table, and then this woman dressed like a prostitute comes in and she begins to sit at his feet and crying all over his feet and wiping it with her hair and pouring oil and kissing his feet. How off does that make your religious side feel? So off, because we're saying, dude, that is not appropriate conduct you better take that out of the house right now, lady. You know? Go put a shirt on. And that's what the Pharisees do. They see this woman at the feet of Jesus, and Simon says, if this was really a prophet, if this guy was really who he says he was, he would know what this woman is. He would know who she is, and he would say something about it. Because that's what the Pharisee heart wants to do, wants to do something about it. Wants to fix people. And Jesus wants to love people. So he lets her continue. And it's funny. I said, you know, Simon, Simon invited Jesus over for a meal. Yeah, but it's likely that this is exactly what Simon was hoping for. He wanted to trap Jesus into something. And so the moment this woman looks, like, walks in the door and starts doing these things, Simon's probably like, yes, like I got it, evidence, you know? We're gonna get this guy now. And he never speaks a word. Simon never speaks a word. Ever. And then Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Because he knew Simon's heart. He knew Simon's heart. This is a really cool little thing that I don't even have in my notes, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit wanted to share with you guys is that, and with myself also, we pray a lot, we say a lot of things, 
Something I want to suggest is God doesn't speak English. I mean, he does. I mean, I understand he knows English. But English is not God's native tongue. It's your heart. God speaks heart. Not English. So you can have all the most eloquent words put together and stringed into the most beautiful prayer ever. And it can mean nothing if your heart is not in that same place. In the same way, we can have people that have come to the feet of Jesus with all their junk, all their mess. Some of the most incredible prayers I've ever heard were from students that in the moment where they're cussing like crazy and you're just like, oh, that's heavy. And like, my, your, your religious spirit's like, no, don't talk to God like that. You know, God knows our hearts. And when it comes from the heart, when it's passion, then it's power. Because it's exposed, it's real, it's not this fake mask. It's not Pharisee. It's a sinner's heart recognizing who it is, but also who Jesus is. So this woman, she didn't, she didn't, she came in as she was. She came as she was. And in the same way, God wants us to come as we are. She loved Jesus more than she feared society. She loved Jesus more than she feared society. And I think that's something so important in the church today. Even for myself, I think we fear society more than we love Jesus a lot of times. Talking about him is scary. Even though the worst, I mean, like, that's, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous idea. Back in the day, if you talked about Jesus, you'd get killed. I understand the fear there. But for us, it's like, oh, I might lose a friend or the cashier might think I'm weird, you know? What do we have to lose besides pride? Got nothing to lose but pride. Now, this transparent brokenness is the state that Jesus' love consumes us. He just consumes this woman in love. And it's only in recognizing who we are without him that we become uncontrollably obsessed with him. Until we recognize who we are without God, we can't have a true, passionate love for God. So we need to be real. Broken humility. Uh, Jesus, um, he speaks at the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the first things he says in the Beatitudes is, blessed, in the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's it. This is exactly what he's talking about when he says the poor in spirit. It's the person who knows who they are without God. And until that sits in our heart, until that takes life in our heart, we can't be open to the love of God because we build up our own pride, self-righteousness. Now, I'm going to say something offensive in just a moment. So get your heart ready. <laughs> All right? But before that, I just want to read this thing. This is beautiful. It should be on the overhead. You can read this along with me. A genuine understanding of our depravity without Jesus in combination with the unconditional love and forgiveness of Jesus will inevitably result in a most radical and offensive love to those that don't understand it which includes the worldly and the self-righteous. When we have a true passion for Jesus, there's two groups of people that won't like you very much. Self-righteous people and worldly people. They're both going to be confused by it because they both don't understand it. But when we recognize who we are without him, and then we put that in combination with who he is and who we can become with him, there's no limit to passion. 
There's, a, there's no limit to passion. See, when we find ourselves with a limit of passion, when we find ourselves with, with, a, with a, like a deficit, maybe it's because we view ourselves too highly and we view him too lowly. But if we had that switched, if we viewed Jesus as so great and us where we belong without him, when we get that right, salvation does something in a person. It brings us to life. And it creates a well of passion that never stops flowing. Because we know who we were. We know what we deserved. But then we also know now what we have. And how could we be silent about that? Amen? Okay, here's your offensive statement. God desires the brokenness of a whore over the self-righteousness of a religious person. Let that settle in. God, our Father, He desires the brokenness of a whore over the self-righteousness of a religious person. A lot of us hear the word whore and we're like, what? That's who this woman was. And Jesus accepted her right then and right there. And you know what he says? He looks at the woman talking to Simon, totally just, that's, that's a huge statement. He's speaking to Simon, but he doesn't even look at him. He looks at the woman. And he says, Simon, this woman is forgiven. This woman is forgiven. The self-righteous heart is not. And what this does is this creates this flip, this change of identity for this woman. Because all these Pharisees, their entire lives sing this woman, this woman's whole life, they viewed her as that. She is a prostitute. She's a whore. Jesus says, no, she's forgiven. That's her new identity. She's no longer defined by what she did. She's defined by what I'm about to do. And in the same way for us as Christians, we're not defined by our past. We're defined by what he did. That's who we are. That's how he sees us. So Jesus creates this complete redefinition of this woman. And so these Pharisees, their jaws are just dropped. Their religious little hearts are freaking out because he just did something that he shouldn't have done according to their, their own minds. God wants brokenness, not self-righteousness. Amen? Now, this can be dangerous because then some of us can, I, I know I did when I was younger, I was like, I had this thought that, well, you know, because Jesus finishes that sentence, he said, that, that statement. He says, uh, he says, to the one that's forgiven much, they're going to love much. And the one who's forgiven little, they're going to love little. And so I used to have this totally twisted concept of it like, okay, well, I better go do like a lot of bad stuff so that I can go ask for forgiveness and then really love God for all his forgiveness, you know? And like, I thought that way, but that's not the point. That's not the point. Our brokenness is not dependent on the severity of our sin. So you could have stolen one thing your whole life or you could have stolen, I mean, every single day of your life. One person doesn't necessarily become more broken than the other. It's not on the severity of your sin. It's on the depth of the understanding that you have of God's love. So we can know, yeah, I've stolen one time in my life. That's the only sin I've ever committed my entire life. 
and we could still come to the point where we recognize, you know what, that doesn't matter. Even if that's the worst thing I've ever done, I still deserve hell. But he still saves and loves me. And I can have the same brokenness as a prostitute. It's not about how sinful you've been. It's about how big do you see him as. Amen? We're all equally sinful and guilty. We all deserve hell. But we're all equally forgiven and loved. We've all been given access to the Father. Our love for God is based on our realization of this truth. Who we are apart from him and who we are in him and him in us. Man, that's the first section of the sermon. You guys ready for part two? It's going to be really short because I, don't, I didn't really get much out of this. I mean, there's a lot, but I, I had some other things to focus on. There's a lot out of it. That's not what I'm trying to say. Whatever. <laughs> All right, let's go. So Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It says, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, speaking of the disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their own means. And I mean, really what I wanted to hit from that is social standing cannot dictate a person's state of heart. We're talking about heart. Your social standing cannot dictate your state of heart. It can't. These were women of various backgrounds with one thing in common. They love Jesus. That's what it all comes down to. We love Jesus. That's where everything flows out of. We love Jesus. And for these women and for the disciples, the same thing. They loved Jesus. Some of these women mentioned in this list are rich. Some are poor. One was demon-possessed. They all love Jesus. So one thing I want us to understand, we're all sitting in this auditorium together. We're all in different places of social standing according to our culture. Some of us are wealthy. Some of us are not so wealthy. Some of us are like borderline wealthy and we hate taxes because of it, you know. And, but that doesn't determine anything about our love for God. It doesn't. It shouldn't. It can't. Unless if you allow it to. Social standing is no dictation of our passion for Jesus. Amen? All right. Whew, I'm so ready for this one. I'm so ready for these next two parts. You guys ready? This is going to be so good. Oh, man. I'm going to hold my iPad and everything because I'm so excited about it. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed and some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it and some fell on the rock as, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then everybody's confused, so he goes on in verse 9. Like, what the heck is he talking about? And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in the parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, they received it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. 
As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus mentions four types of soils. He mentions the, de- the, the unresponsive heart, which is the seed that fell on the rock or fell on the, the, on the path. It's a very unresponsive heart. Now, it can become assumed that we can assume that, okay, well, it's the devil's fault that people don't know Jesus. That's not true. It's an unresponsive heart that allows de- the devil to come and instill that seed. Okay? It's the status of our heart that determine these things. An unresponsive heart, so then the devil can take away what was given. Acts 24, verse 24, you don't have to turn there, but you can mark it on your notes. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is, in, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in, in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Unresponsive heart. An unresponsive heart is the heart that hears the word of God and doesn't really know what to do with it. So we kind of push it off or we put it on the back burner or we we say like, you know, I'll get to that when it's more convenient. Like Felix is saying here in this scripture in Acts, I'll get to it when it's more convenient. All that does is open the door for Satan to come and steal whatever it was that was there for you. But there was something there for you. The next part, the next uh, type of heart he talks about is the impulsive heart. An impulsive faith that fails under trials and hardships. And we've all known people like this. Some of us have at one point been a person like this where they get really passionate about God. They get really passionate about Jesus and they're all pumped up and fired up. But then the moment one thing happens that is difficult in their life, they abandon it all. And then they walk out and they say something like, well, you know, I tried the Jesus thing. I tried Christianity No, you don't try Christianity. If you're truly consumed in the love of God, you change. It changes you. You endure. You persevere. That's not, you don't, we don't try Jesus. We don't. He's not like this random article of clothing that you just try on for a while. And if it looks good, cool. And if it doesn't, I'm going to throw it away. The Bible says that's called apostasy. The abandoning and rejection of one's faith. You see, a true and rooted faith, when we truly know Jesus, that's what this is all about, knowing Jesus. We each need to know Jesus. We don't need to just listen to sermons and, and, and worship songs. We need to know Jesus. That's the point, okay? Now, a person who truly has connection with Jesus has roots. Their faith perseveres in any hardship, any, any hardship ever. It doesn't matter because Jesus is the center, Jesus is enough. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. The question arises, can somebody lose their salvation? I believe no. No. I believe if you're truly saved, you're never going to look back. I think if you've had a taste of Jesus, like you're just kind of like dipping your little big toe into the water kind of thing, then it's really easy to walk away when trials happen. Why? Because you're still the center and life still doesn't make sense. Now, the next heart that he talks about is a preoccupied heart, willing to sacrifice eternal things for the instant yet temporal things. He names three things. Number one, he names worries. 
Everybody say worries. An example of this would be Herod, Herod Antipas, who, who hurt, he would listen often to John the Baptist. But the moment that this whole, I mean, it was a weird situation where his wife's daughter is doing this really provocative dance and it pleases Herod and him and his buddies are all pumped up about it. And then the, what he tells the girl, you know, anything you ask, I'll give to you. And she, her mom's just disgustingly twisted person, apparently, and says that she wanted John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. Now, Herod gets filled with worry because there's people around him that just heard, I'll give you anything that, that I tell you. So he can't go back on his word. He fears men more than he fears God. And so what does he do? He gives in. John the Baptist's head is taken off. As an example in the Bible of somebody that's consumed by worry, when we fear people more than we fear God, we shouldn't fear people, period. Ever, ever, ever. Matthew 6.31, or actually, let's, let's do Matthew uh, 10.28, says don't, not to fear men because they can't touch our souls. If Jesus was really all that mattered, if he was really the center of our lives, it wouldn't matter what people could do to us because they can't touch Jesus inside of us. That can't be separated. So what do we have to truly lose? If he's everything, nothing. If you feel like you have something to lose, it means you still have a lot. You're, you're still putting a lot into what you have in this world, okay? So don't fear men because they can't touch our souls. Matthew 6, 31 says, do not be anxious, but seek and trust God, paraphrase. He's saying, why do we worry about what we're gonna eat or what we're gonna wear? Yeah, those things are concerning, but if we trust God as our father, why worry? The Lord provides, does he not? The Lord provides, but if we have a fear, mm, something that, that God's been telling me is uh, fear, is dark faith. Fear is dark faith. When we fear something, we're putting faith into that thing we are afraid of because we believe it to be so strong that it deserves our respect of fear. But if we only fear God, true faith, then it doesn't matter what anything can do to us because he's all that matters anyway. Don't have dark faith in your heart. Do not fear. Don't fear. Then the next thing he mentions are riches. And we see examples of this, the rich young ruler, the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus. People that are consumed in wealth. And wealth isn't a bad thing. The Bible mentions like four categories of wealth and it's people that have it and they're good. They're righteous people. Then there's people who have money and they're unrighteous. Then there's people who don't have money and they're righteous. And there's people that don't have money and they're unrighteous. Wealth doesn't determine your righteousness. Remember, social standing doesn't matter at that point. It's what you do with it. Where's your heart at in it? If you're poor, be righteous. Love God with your poorness. If you're rich, love God with your richness. Love God with your wealth. It's the status of your heart. Then the next thing he mentions are pleasures of life, which we understand to be sinful things, drunkenness, sexual immorality, gluttony, etc. But these can also be things that become sinful by turning, in, by turning it into idolatry. So sitting in front of our TVs for six hours a day, it's idolatry. That's what it is. And we can pretty it up like, well, it's a really good show. Okay. It's idolatry. And that makes it a pleasure of this life that's gonna just choke out the seed that God's planted inside of you. 2 Timothy 4.10 says, for Demas... This guy, uh, Demas, he was mentioned earlier in Scripture, and Paul exhorts him. He talks about how awesome of a guy he is. Now in 2 Timothy, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
The pleasures of the world choked out the life of Christ in this man. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not, that's not a both and. It's if or, like either or. It's either one or the other. Either the love of God's inside of you or the love of the world's inside of you. It's not both. It's one or the other. For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then the final soil he talks about, it's a responsive heart. It's a heart that receives, it clings, and it perseveres to the end. Isaiah 55.10 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, and we understand Jesus to be the word, right? From John chapter 1. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing that I sent it. John 4.36 says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. The point is, examine yourself. The sower of the seed is mentioned once, and then it's all about the soil. It's about our hearts. Where are our hearts at? I was going to go further into this, but I want to get into the next part before we run out of time. But if you've ever been into gardening, good soil is broken soil. Good soil is soil that's been broken up to a specific depth so that it can take in everything God wants to put into it. Are you broken? Do you truly see who you are without God? Do we understand our depravity without him? Because it's that brokenness that makes us open to his love. Now, I'm going to close in this. The lamp under a jar. So let's read Luke 8, 16. It says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but they put it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, Jesus draws this illustration between Christians and lamps. So my first thought, you know, as a pastor was like, okay, how can I make an illustration about this? And so I started thinking about lamps, modern day lamps. I was like, okay, cool. We can come up with a really cool illustration. Lamps, you have to plug them into a power source. Without Jesus as our power source, we can't give off light. I was like, you know, that's really cool. That's pretty good. That's pretty good, right? You know, Jesus has to be your power source. Amen? Yeah. All right. But Jesus' illustrations are better than mine. So I decided to stick with his. So I wanted to talk about first century lamps, the lamps that Jesus was referring to. I should have an image of this on the screen. It's called the Herodian lamp. There it is. It's a a first century Jewish lamp. Well, it's not just Jewish, but it's in that culture, okay? And it's handmade, okay? It's handmade from soft and broken clay. Before they ever create this thing, it had to be soft, broken clay. And then they form it into this. They form it into a lamp. Then they fuel it, they, they put, it's, it's, there's a bowl, you can see it as a bowl, and they fill it with olive oil, just basic cheap olive oil, just, and that olive oil is its source of fuel. And then they have a wick that they put into it, and then they light the flame, and because of the olive oil inside, the, the wick burns, 
Okay? Now, in the same way, Jesus is drawing an awesome illustration that just like slammed me when I started studying this as to how we're lamps. We've been formed. Genesis 2, 6 through 7 says, Man was formed from the water dust or the clay of the ground by God, formed by God. Jeremiah 8, 5 through 6 says, We are clay in the potter's hand to God. Galatians 4.19 says, Christ is being formed in us. Same term, that word form that's using, it's the same exact term. We're being formed into something else. I spoke this word, I gave this word at, my, at the youth group a couple months back, and one of the students pointed out to me something that was awesome. He said, hey, kind of, he said, look at how it just kind of looks like a bowl, and then they kind of like later on added the spout or something, like it was like a second thought. It made me think like, as Christians, haven't we been recreated, rebirthed, reformed, where at once we were, we, were formed, we were doing something completely different, but then God comes and does something different. He changes the direction of our life, the shape of who we are, and makes us worth something so much more valuable. A bowl just gets eaten out of, like, that's all it does. It doesn't, it's really not that valuable. But to give off light, that's value, that's beautiful. Then, in the same way that we are formed, we're fueled. It talks about olive oil. If you're, if you're a student of Scripture, oil is a common symbol for the Holy Spirit. Very common symbol for the Holy Spirit. So you can be a light. You can be a Herodian lamp and do absolutely nothing still. If you don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, just, just with his life, you still can't be a light. You need him. We need him. He needs to be the center of it all. Jesus is at that center. The oil is the working of God within us by the Holy Spirit. And then at that point, we come into flame, called to a higher standard to illuminate the darkness. See, the flame is the result of that work put on display for all to see. The flame is because of the life of Jesus inside of us. The flame is an unquenchable passion fueled by the Spirit. Jesus says you don't hide it under a bed. You don't hide it under, under, a, under a, a basket. He says you put it up high. Too many times, and I'm speaking, um, I think spiritual warfare is like what God's putting on my heart for this. Too many times we're afraid of the darkness. We fear Satan, which as I said earlier is dark faith. That's already an issue. We were not meant to hide out. We were meant to put up on high, to be put high up so that darkness would be eliminated, cast out completely. Amen? That's something worth clapping for, not because of me. So you guys, everybody clap. As a Christian, you're meant to expose the enemy, not people. You're not meant to go out and point fingers at people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So when our enemies are people, we're already missing the point. The enemies, it's the work of the devil that we don't have to be afraid of because we're a light. We are a light. What are we afraid of? Unless, of course, if we aren't a light. Unless, of course, if we aren't being filled with the Spirit. 
then there's a lot to fear because then darkness overcomes. There needs to be light. A flame is placed above darkness to defeat it. Are you burning with passion by Christ? Everybody say, by Christ. There's a big difference. A lot of us think we are living for God, and it's a good intention, good heart. Yeah, I'm living, I'm living for God. We're not just living for God. We're living by God, with God. Not for, we're not trying to, to earn this like trophy from him or something. We are living with God, by the power of God. Amen? He's our source. He's our fuel. 1 John 4.19 says, because he loves us, we love him. He first loved us, we love him. Hebrews 12.29 says, our God is an all-consuming fire. And the closer you draw to the true source of fire within, the brighter and the hotter your flame will become. When you meet a true, like a Christian that's truly just passionate, like just, they're just boiling with passion for Christ, it's not because they're better than you. It's because they know who they are without God and they know who they are with God. And in that recognition, they're a light. They're a light to the world, and it changes things. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil or dark. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And if you study that, that sentence, be filled with the Spirit in Greek, it doesn't mean one time. It means continuously. Continuously be filled with the Spirit. Some of us were raised in, um, I don't know, religions or categories of faith where the Holy Spirit's just weird and you stay as far away from it as possible because people are just weird like when they get on like the Holy Spirit, you know? And then some of us have been brought up in churches where you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit one time, and then it's like a check off of your to-do list for, as a Christian. That's not the point, though. Baptism in the Spirit is not a one-moment thing that you check off of your checklist. It's a lifestyle that you do every moment of every day because it's always available. Jesus says, ask, and it'll be given to you. What do we do? We ask, Holy Spirit, come over me. Then nothing physically weird happens. And so we walk away like, oh, I'm a bad person. God doesn't love me. No, Jesus said, ask and you receive. If he's your father, if he's inside of you, the moment you speak it, God, I need you, you're being filled. It says, walk in faith, not by sight. But what do we do? We say, well, we need this, this, and this, and this to confirm that God just did what he promised he would do. Why do we need to confirm what God already said he will do? Amen? When you live by the passionate fire of Christ within, you cannot be silenced, you cannot be still, and you cannot be stopped. You cannot. It's not possible. And some of you guys are like, well, you know, what if you just throw some water on the fire? Then that water goes out. What about the trials and tribulations of the world? What about when, when the waves come over me and life gets all crazy and then I can't follow God anymore? I can't be passionate anymore because everything's just going to hell. Everything's just going awful in my life. What about then? I don't think water is an issue for God's fire. And if you need proof, read the story of Elijah when he calls down fire from heaven. What does it do? He calls down fire. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the water. And it consumes the rocks. 
Our God is an all-consuming fire. So it doesn't matter what comes against us. We can't be quenched. We can't be stopped. The fire of God cannot be put out. It cannot be put out. Isaiah 43, 2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. God is the only all-consuming fire. Amen? And if he is for us, nothing can stand against us. Are you on fire? Are we on fire this morning? You've been given everything you need as a Christian. He's formed you. If you are a believer, if you've asked Jesus into your heart, he has recreated you. You are a new creation. You've been formed. Check. That's done. You've been given access to the fuel. He said, ask and it'll be given to you. Check. So that's not in our way. Now, the question is, how hot and how big is your flame? And the answer to that is probably, how deeply do you truly understand God's love inside of you, for you, all over you? Because when we have that in its place, the fire of God is unstoppable. If you aren't on fire, and I don't mean this in a con condemning way, but I do mean this in a very serious way. If we aren't on fire now, the people around us will be consumed with fire and hell for eternity. That's, that's what it is. If we believe Jesus and his words, that's the point too. That's part of the truth. If we aren't on fire, if we aren't expressing our love for God, people around us are never going to know. And they're going to pay an eternal consequence. I mean, yeah, they have a responsibility in it, but we have a responsibility in it also. He says we are the hands and feet. A lot of times we're praying. We're praying, we're praying, we're praying, God, 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 do this thing, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. And that's beautiful, and we shouldn't stop doing that as long as you recognize that he's saying, okay, but... You do this thing. I'm inside of you. You want God to move on this earth? Start stepping out in faith. We are the hands and feet. We are the body. He moves through people. He always has. If we aren't stepping out, nothing will happen. And we can be in our prayer closets all day. But when he says move and we don't move, nothing happens. We need to step out. We need to demonstrate fire. We need to allow God to put us into a place. And that's something that we need to understand. Wherever you are right now, God has put you there to illuminate darkness around you. You don't fix cars just to fix cars. God has you fixing cars because you're supposed to be a testimony to people to bring them into the kingdom. You're not a cashier just because you're a cashier. That's not coincidence. God has something for you to be doing. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Are you listening? That's all it comes down to. Are you listening? Because he's inside of you. He wants to say something. I'm going to close with this illustration. The early Christians were on fire. 
I think a lot of times in our generation today of, of church, we all look at the early church and we're like, man, I really want that. But then it says something like, and they sold their homes and gave all their money. And we're like, oh, I don't want that. <laughs> a little too far, you know. You know, whatever. But the early Christians were on fire. They burned so bright, so passionately that catch this, they were actually burned to death for it. Emperor Nero persecuted the church in, in 64 AD, and persecution just went on till like almost 300 AD. It was brutal. You know what Emperor Nero did? Hey, he sets this fire to Rome, blames the Christians in order to have access to kill them, having a, a support from the Roman people. And then Nero has Christians placed on lampposts, covered in tar and burned alive to light up his gardens at night. Talk about living it out. If you study the way persecution worked, all you had to do was say, I don't believe in Jesus. It was that simple. Four words. Or five words, I don't even know. What is that? Five. Yeah. That's all they had to say. I don't believe in him. I don't. And they would give you three opportunities before they ever touched you physically, before they ever hurt you in any way, shape, or form, they would say, just say this. They didn't even care if you meant it. They just wanted to hear you say it. Three opportunities to say five simple words, and these Christians went to their grave because they refused to let the passion be quenched. They gave their lives, and they literally lived Jesus' words to be a light unto the darkness. People saw them burning and immediately knew who these people were. They saw these people burning to death on lampposts. They knew, that's a Christian. That's a Christ follower. That's one of those people. And what happened is incredible. The Roman people became so compassionate towards the Christians that the gospel spread faster than the fire that Nero, that Nero set off to destroy it. The Roman people began to, to develop this compassion towards the Christians. And in turn, they got saved. Because these Christians were lights, literally. When you're on fire, you'll know it. So if you're asking a question, am I on fire? You'll know if you're on fire or not. People won't be able to ignore it. People crowded to see these Christians on fire, and people will also crowd to see you living by the fire of God. Some to admire, some to attack, but all to see the obvious passion that your Father has ignited inside of your heart. People in darkness can harm us, but they can't quench our fire. They can't touch our hope in Jesus. So are you burning today? Are you broken? Are you broken? Because it's in our brokenness that we are then blessed with a new life. And it is in the blessing of a new life that we begin to burn passionately for our Father. Amen.